Morning, everyone. Glad you're here with us today. And uh, we are in a series in the Book of Romans. My name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and we're moving through this wonderful and important book in the Bible. We'll be in verses 18 through 23. Uh, so, if you could turn there, that'd be great. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have journals we can give you. I will project the verses on the screen as well for convenience, but it's great to have the Bible in your hands right in front of you if possible or on your phone um, and you can follow along. Uh, and the journals, by the way, are complimentary uh, for you to keep and to take notes in and, and Lord willing, build a whole library of, of sermon notes as we benefit from God's wonderful Word. Um, well, the title of the message today is Lost in Foolishness and as you turn, let me... Uh, Tell you a story in 1930 in the early days of the Nazi regime in Germany, Winston Churchill uh, was a political leader in England, not yet the prime minister. He was adamant uh, that Hitler was a menace that must be stopped. He, had, he said many strong things about Hitler. Um, he saw what was coming. He would later say about Hitler this, Hitler is a monster of wickedness, insatiable in his lust for blood and plunder. The terrible military machine which we and the rest of the civilized world so foolishly, so supinely, so insensately allowed the Nazi gangsters to build up year by year from almost nothing cannot stand idle lest it rust or fall to pieces. It must be in continual motion grinding up human lives and trampling down the homes and rights of hundreds of millions of men. It was Churchill's description of Hitler. He was strong and clear in his stance against Hitler, yet at the time, it was suppressed by the media. The media and much of the British government was in favor of the policy of appeasement, allowing Hitler to have his demands in hope of avoiding another world war. And they, they made the famous Munich Pact, which allowed him to conquer uh, Austria, Czechoslovakia, and allowed Mussolini to keep Ethiopia. They negotiated these countries away with Hitler in order to have a false peace. All along, Hitler was playing games. He would say later when he was preparing to brazenly invade Poland about the fact that it would prompt a war with the British. He said, our enemies are small worms. I saw them at Munich. Churchill was unafraid to call out the Nazis for what they were. He realized negotiating for appeasement was wrong and foolish and would only empower evil and destroy good. Yet, he was extremely unpopular. But he was right. Well, why am I telling you that story? Because that is how I think about our passage today. I'm going to read you a passage and talk about something that is extremely unpopular but is right. And it is something that makes us face the enemy with all the evil of the enemy. Not that we might merely dwell on the enemy, but we might find a cure. That is what this section is about. That's what this section and the following sections are all about. Up until we get to halfway through chapter 3, Paul is telling us the bad news. He's announcing who the enemy is, that we might not seek to appease that enemy, but might run to the only place where we are safe, the only victory, which we will see, of course, 
is Jesus. So let's pray. Because none of us like to hear a message all about evil. But much of this will be about that. So that we can face the enemy again and find the cure. Let's pray that we would not resist hearing but be open and listen and be changed by God's word. That we would not soft pedal the reality of humanity that this passage describes in order that we might diagnose humanity properly and find the only cure. We need help with that. All of us, each one of us needs help. So let's pray and ask God to help us hear from his word. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for who you are. You are good and glorious. And apart from you, there is no good and no true glory. And Lord, we in our state of rebellion are so foolish because we don't like this truth. And I pray today, Lord, give us grace by your spirit to hear your truth and to turn to you and to find in you more goodness and glory than we could ever imagine. To find our life in you, we pray. So Lord, help me as I teach this and as we go through it to do that accurately, faithfully, and in line with the, the weight of these texts, but also help us to hear and listen and be changed. And through all this, Lord, bring us the life that is true life. And use us to spread that glorious and good life around as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. God's word, Romans 1, 18 through 23. Again, this is the first section of Paul's discussion of the universal problem of unrighteousness. He's going to take the, almost the next three chapters to talk about this. And at the end, there'll be no one left standing, no human left standing, no culture left standing. This section, uh, verses 18 through 32, is largely about the non-Jewish culture, the, the Gentiles. And then he's going to go on in chapter 2, uh, and into three to talk about the Jewish culture as well. And the point through it all is that there is no one righteous, no one at all. And that will set, set the stage to understand and receive the righteousness of God. The righteousness that God supplies, which comes through the only righteous man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now we'll talk about this and we'll talk about the cure, of course, today. But before we do that, we need to diagnose the illness we need to look at the reality. We need to look at the reality that this passage teaches us. That there, our unrighteousness leads us to invert 
God's good creation and the glory of, of God and his creation through our active suppression of the obvious truth. We are lost in foolishness without God. And we subvert, we invert God's order. And so I want to look at three things that we do that we find in this passage. One, we are lost in foolishness and suppress the truth. Two, we are lost in foolishness and deny the obvious truth. Three, we are lost in foolishness and worship contrary to the truth. So we suppress the truth, we deny the obvious truth, we worship contrary to the truth. That's all in this passage, we'll go through it. So first, we are lost in foolishness and suppress the truth. That's what Paul says right here in the beginning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now before we get into suppressing the truth, let's look at the first part of the verse for it says something to us that we might not like. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. It's revealed against what? All the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What is ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Technically, what does that mean? To, the ungodliness here is the quality of being irreverent or disrespectful, neglectful of proper honor and dignity towards God, lacking respect and devotion to God, living really a, a secular life or a sacrilegious life. So ungodliness is disregard for the honor and the sort of lifestyle that is do God as the creator. Unrighteousness, as we talked about, is evil, moral evil, being and doing the wrong thing. So the, this wrath is being poured out from God, being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. In other words, not relating to God and one another in the right way. Being opposed to those things. It's the wrath of God being, poor, uh, being revealed on these things, on the, uh, against the all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Wrath of God. What does that mean? Does it mean that God is just really irritated by these things? That he's just lost his temper? He's lost his cool? Um, the wrathful God, doesn't that seem kind of medieval and cruel? I mean, who wants an angry God, right? We're supposed to have a happy God. Like we have a happy Santa, we should have a happy God. Who wants an angry God? Life is good. Let's all get along, right? This isn't in line with these things, but I would submit to you that these, these notions are ultimately empty and even empty platitudes. Because the reality is, if we look honestly at ourselves and look at our world, there is real evil in the world. There is right and wrong. There is a creator and a creation. And that creator is the definition and source of all that is good and right. And if he is truly good and right in every way, of course he needs to be upset with evil. With things that are wrong. With unrighteousness in whatever form it might take. He is goodness itself. He is the creator. So he must oppose evil. He must be wrathful toward evil. He must have a response. Now the wrath of God is not a capricious, sadistic narcissism. It's not just, you know, God going off on things, losing his cool, or somehow uh, being egocentric and merely and whatever. 
No, it's not that at all. As we look at Scripture, God is patient. He's merciful. He's good. His wrath is a holy, patient, determined opposition to evil. An attitude and action that brings a faithful commitment to respond to it and eradicate it. That's what God's wrath is. It is the right response to evil. Now, we all get this. I think we all understand what is righteous anger. We, we all have perhaps moments where we have righteous anger. Now there's unrighteous anger, and we have to be careful. As human beings, it's hard to, to kind of differentiate at times, and we can move from unrighteous anger, uh, righteous anger into unrighteous anger, but there is such thing as righteous anger, and, and, and we should have that response towards things that are evil. Have you ever had that? Have you ever felt righteous anger? Have you ever seen an injustice, read about an injustice, and it's affected you so much that, that you're emotional? Have you ever had a time where you've actually cried, you're so angry about an unrighteous thing? I've had moments like that. I can remember, um, and I have them, I have them more than once, but I remember a story, uh, uh, one time, actually, uh, I was reading a story, uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. I don't know if you've read that story. Uh, amazing story about Corey Ten... <laughs> Here I am getting emotional in front of you as I recount the story. Uh, amazing story of Corey Ten Boom and, and her endurance of evil and her faithfulness through it. And if you read the story, um, it's, it's hard. And I remember reading the part of the story where the, the Nazi prison guards are mistreating her sister Betty. I was so angry. I wanted to crawl through the book and like throttle that prison guard. And I was so angry, I had to, put, I had to close the book and put it down. And it's a book, you know, it's not, it's, I didn't even know this person, but I had to put it down because I was feeling so angry um, that I just needed a break. I imagine you've felt like that at times as well. It is right to be angry at things like that. It's right to feel that. It's right to, to be upset at injustice and evil. And this is what our God is like perfectly and completely. He feels and reacts to injustice and evil deeply. He's very holy. He is perfectly innocent. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly pure. And he's Lord of all. He's the creator and sustainer of all. Everything comes from him. Every good thing comes from him. And so he must be wrathful towards ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we'll see in this passage that it's both temporal and eternal. He brings wrath against unrighteousness in temporal ways. And he brings wrath against unrighteousness in eternal ways. He is a God full of perfect justice. He's not vindictive. He's not cruel. He's not partial. He's impartial and just in every way. And, and in Revelation 15, as it speaks about the worship in heaven after the, the beast, they have overcome the beast, so this is the end of all things. They, it says in Revelation 15, they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. These righteous acts that they're praising God for are his acts of justice. And when we go to heaven and we're before the Lord, there'll be nobody saying, Oh God, that's just not fair. That's not just. We will see the, the perfection of his justice 
and worship him. So God's wrath is his just and right response to evil. And it's poured out on the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And that's where Paul's going to go now. He's going to talk about this idea of suppressing the truth. This is so important to understand. And Paul could have gone in different directions, of course, to talk about this reality of God pouring out, uh, responding in wrath towards evil. He could have talked about the commandments, the commandments to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourselves, and just illustrated that. He could have gone in that direction. But he goes here to talk about this, this reality of suppressing the truth, which is so important to understand. It's so important for us to understand. It's so important for the, the, the um, discussion that Paul has about the gospel. Because we want to suppress the truth, and, and there's the truth of the gospel. We need it to come in and address us and rescue us. So we need to face this reality that we suppress, humanity suppresses the truth. In ungodliness and unrighteousness, we are actively opposing the truth. Moral error is inextricably linked to intellectual and factual error. Immorality itself is a suppression of the truth. Unrighteous humanity necessarily actively suppresses the truth. They go together. Moral truth and intellectual truth are connected. And so when we subvert the moral order, we're subverting the intellectual and philosophical order. We're subverting every aspect of truth. And we're not passive in it. We're active. We actively suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Every time we make a moral choice to do wrong, we are suppressing the truth. We are ignoring some aspect of the truth. We are opposing some aspect of the truth. And they work together. We make moral choices and then we often come up with justifications of it. Or we, we have a system of, of things that are untrue and they lead to immorality. These things work together in this way. And that's what Paul is pointing out. And we are masterful at making up theories and philosophies to justify our moral and emotional commitments. You can, you can apply it to any choice. You can think about somebody who steals something. What's going on when they steal something? Well, we know stealing is wrong. It's a moral choice. But there's, there's thinking that goes on with that. The person thinks at some level, uh, they suppress the truth at some level. They must. The truth, for example, that's obvious to all, that I should... I should uh, do unto others as I'd have them do unto me, right? That, that I'm a human along with everyone else. That's an obvious truth we all know about. And you have to suppress that to steal, right? You have to say, well, that person doesn't deserve what I deserve. I should have this thing. They don't need it. We mistreat them. We abuse that person. We, we lower that person in our mind when we steal. So we're, we're actively suppressing the truth. We're, we're saying, well, I'm going gonna, gonna to ignore that or I'm going to bring up some objection." They have so much, they don't need this thing. Oh, it's only a little thing. All those things go on. People, people don't just simply steal. They are active in thinking through and coming up with excuses for their stealing. Well, I need this thing, and it's really important. And we deny that person what they need. That's, that's untruth. And we steal. They're, they're connected. We can, we can apply it to everything. We can apply this in, in marriage. You're called 
As a husband, you're called to love your wife and to lay your life down for her. You're called to, to honor her as a fellow human being made in the image of God. And if we fall short of that as husbands, we, we are denying the truth. We are making ourselves more important than that other person. We're failing to recognize God's design and his created order. That, that man, a husband and a wife are to love each other. The husband is to lay his life down like Christ did for the church. There's, there's truth connected to those choices and they work together. It works in other areas too. The, the area of sexuality, which the passage we'll talk about uh, later. We'll, we'll talk about this more next week. But our choices in our sexuality, what we do, are, are moral choices and they're intellectual choices. And they work together. And usually there's something that has set itself up in our mind that leads to the moral choice or vice versa. These things are connected and, and so the, the immorality, the unrighteousness of mankind is, is connected to suppressing the truth. And, and I've seen this. I've seen this as a pastor. We see it in our culture. I'll talk some more about some more examples in the culture later. But I've seen it in people's lives personally. I've seen people jettison good theology for the sake of a bad moral choice. And it, it's amazing how quickly someone's theology and philosophy can change because of a moral choice. The young woman who wants to date a funny, kind, and attractive Man, but he's unbelieving, suddenly has problems with the reliability of God's word. Can we really rely? Is that what it really means? The person um, filling out their taxes doesn't want to report things because, well, you know, that their, their political philosophy kicks in and they come up with a, a, something that uh, is an excuse that denies the truth that you're called to honor government. Uh, it goes on and on and we see these things. And, and we do all this uh, as humans, this is something that goes on inside of you at times. It goes on inside your neighbor. It's going on inside of our culture. And all the while, we live in God's good creation, cared for by God continually. God is ever good to us. We derive our existence and the reliability of the universe from Him. He is the one who sustains all things. He is the one who, who strengthens and establishes all Truth. He is the reason one plus one equals two. He's the reason the sun comes up. He's the reason why elect electrons orbit the nucleus, why matter and energy work. He's the reason why your brain works. We owe everything to him. And nevertheless, we stand on all this truth that he's established and conveniently deny the truths that we don't like. We suppress the truth even while standing on the truth. Professor Cornelius Van Til uh, spoke of humanity being like a little girl sitting on her father's lap, slapping him in the face, telling him he doesn't exist. The reason is because we sit on God's lap. God is the one who establishes everything that we depend on. He is the one who upholds all things. And without him, there'd, there'd be no reality. There'd be no ability to even think through things. There'd, no, there'd be no, no ability to do anything, no ability to make statements. No ability to breathe and have food and all these things. And so we sit on his lap as humanity and we slap him in the face. You don't exist. That's the sad truth for all of us. To some degree, individually, among 
cultures, and so forth. We actively suppress the truth. Now, it's important to understand here in Romans, Romans chapter 1, this is not saying every human being does this to the nth degree. This is something that characterizes everybody, though, to some degree. And certain cultures are characterized by this, and they can take this to extreme degrees as well. So this is indicting all of us. We do this. We actively suppress the truth. Now we deny the obvious truth that the passage teaches us as well. Verses 19 through 20 says it this way. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. This truth that we deny is an obvious truth. It isn't, it isn't a hidden truth, a mysterious truth. It's an obvious truth. It says that God has made it plain to mankind. That's important in all this, to understand for ourselves and as we engage with others as well. These truths are not obscure. God is not hiding himself. God is not unknowable. God is not distant. Creation has not been co-opted by the devil to made to be some evil, confusing place. God is over creation. God is sovereign over creation. He dwells in his creation. He sustains his creation. And his creation consistently images, shows forth his goodness and glory. Yes, there's a fall. That's affected things. There's a brokenness in creation. But even despite that, God's goodness and glory shines through. That's so important to understand. That's what Paul is saying here. And it does lead us to say some things about creation. Uh, I'll do that in a little bit that are really important. Understanding the goodness and glory of God in creation will protect us from many heresies, and we'll talk briefly about that in a bit. But creation is a way that God reveals himself in his goodness and glory. It says his invisible attributes uh, are, are clearly perceived in creation. The, the word is uh, literally his invisibles. His invisibles are visible in creation. That's what this passage is teaching us. That, that these invisible aspects of God are shown in creation. Um, and what, is it, what are these aspects in particular? What is it talking about? It's his eternal power and divine nature. So looking at creation, looking at the beauty and the glory of creation tells us about God. It's, it communicates what he is like to a degree. It's undeniable and clear that there is a supernatural almighty being who's created all things. There is a personal creator. It's not a force. This is a personal creator. We are not here as a result of a multiverse that somehow got it right in the one we live in. No, there is a personal creator. We see that. And this creator is not only personal and intelligent, we can see by the design around us, but he's powerful because the things he's made are obviously very powerful. Creation is full of power, and so this being who made it must be infinitely powerful. So he's personal and he's powerful. Now, let me back up and illustrate that a little bit, that this is clear as it says in the passage. If you were walking through the woods, um, in Haverhill somewhere or in, in some woods nearby, and you came across a stone wall, 
What would you think? It's interesting, there are so many stone walls in the woods in New England. Um, and have you ever thought how they got there? Well, thousands and thousands of years ago, there were these certain glaciers that came through and deposited the rocks in straight lines and stacked like five rocks high. And then there were certain glaciers that went this way and made the right angles. That's how they got there. Anyone buy my theory? Certainly there were glaciers God used, but no, it's, it's obvious the order of those stone walls tell you that, no, this couldn't have been chance, that these were laid by people. And the, the truth is that, the, uh, that it used to be that the, there were no woods, actually. Uh, New England was pretty much clear cut. So those woods that you walk in used to be farm fields that farmers had cleared the stones from and piled up and made their walls hundreds of years ago. You understand that there is an intelligent force behind order. Now imagine if you were walking in the woods and you uh, looked down and there was an Apple watch on the path. And you picked it up and you thought, wow, I'm so grateful I live in this version of the multiverse that this was able to happen. That all these universe possibilities, you know, the, the Apple Watches might have happened, but I lived in the one universe where this was actualized. That just through random chance, all these parts and minerals and everything came together here in my version of the multiverse, and the watch is here. Fantastic. Wow. I wonder what else I might find today. You wouldn't do that. No one would do that, right? It's ridiculous. It's obvious that is someone's watch. It's obvious that, if you know Apple Watches, that Apple Computer made this watch. You can see in the, the, the thing that's there, the creative thing, that there's a personal intelligent being who made this, and they're obviously very competent to make something as complicated as an Apple Watch, right? How much more creation itself, full of amazing complexity, amazing order, it's sustained, it's consistent, it's glorious, it's good. There's so many good things we enjoy. It's not just functional, it's beautiful. And we are in it all the time. How much more than does, does creation point to the reality that God is a being, an intelligent and superior uh, divine being, and he's mighty and he's powerful. That's what Paul is saying. That's what creation is saying. That his attributes are clearly shown in creation. He is real and he's mighty. And so we're without excuse because it's so obvious. And by the way, uh, those are some of the sorts of theories that we have come up with to explain creation and to somehow get God out of the picture. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. We come up with these outrageous theories like multiverses, to get away from the fact that there is a God who made all things. Um, and just to the side point of creation, just to understand the, uh, the goodness of creation and how it shows God's glory in these things is so important. Creation is good as created by God. It's not evil. And so it's to be enjoyed in, in the worship of God. That's God's intention uh, 
1 Timothy 4, Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Creation is good as created by God, and creation is how God makes the visibles, the invisibles visible. That's really important too. There, there are uh, Gnostic doctrines. There are doctrines that are out there that have influenced us to see creation as kind of like second rate. Like there's the spirit. That's the important stuff, being spiritual. And then the physical, well, you know, we can do without that. And, and that's not what the word teaches, that the, the physical creation, which is spiritual and physical together, actually, uh, is how God makes himself known. The invisible God is known through his creation. He makes the, visibles, the invisibles visible through creation and ultimately through humans. Humans are the image of God over his creation. And the ultimate human, Jesus, God in the flesh, is how we see what God is like. And so creation is given by God not to, not to be like, well, just put that aside, but as a means of seeing God's goodness and glory. So the problem isn't with creation, it's with how we use it. And it's meant to be used as a means of knowing God and enjoying God and blessing others as well. So that includes all creation. That includes your body, your mind, food, clothing, architecture, science, math, arts, law, natural law, marriage, family, the church... Sacraments, music, recreation, plants, animals, the cosmos, all these things are made by God as good to be engaged to enjoy God, to love God, and to love others. I hope that makes sense, and I'd love to have you come to our class on Worldview uh, once a month, starting November 3rd, Wednesday at 7, if you want to talk about this more, and then we're going to have one on su the following Sunday as well, just to talk about these important issues. All that to say, the goodness and glory of God is shown clearly in his creation. But we deny the obvious. And that leads to the final point. So we suppress the truth, we deny the obvious truth, and we worship contrary to the truth. Verse 21 and 20 to 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This denial of truth is very personal. It isn't just about ideas. It's about God. It's, it's about a being. God who is a personal being. This is a personal spiritual thing. It's about worship. And what we do in our Suppression of the truth is we subvert God's order. We invert God's order. We put things upside down. We exchange the, the glory of God, the goodness of God for, for his creation. We turn things upside down in every way. We exchange the glory of God. The goodness of God and all of his glory, all the dimensions of his glory and all of his goodness. We say, ah, no thanks, I want your stuff, not you. And I want to use your stuff instead of it showing me you, I'm going to kind of tweak my theories and my ideas so it points away from you in some way. We subvert the created order. We take creation that's meant to be like something that wows us and gives us joy and, and gives us uh, a heart to thank God and honor Him, we, we subvert all that so we look elsewhere and we actually worship the creation instead of the Creator. Instead of it leading us to God, 
we subvert it so it leads us away. And that's the, the sin that Paul's going to get into, this idea of, of turning things upside down, exchanging creation, exchanging God's glory for creation, and that's the opposite of how it's meant to function. We are, we're supposed to, it says here, uh, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So creation's meant to work in us in such a way that we honor God and we give him thanks. It's meant to inspire worship. When we engage creation, when we, when we see God imaged in another human being, when we, when we see God imaged in a church, when we see a glorious day in all of its beauty, it's meant to work in us this honoring and thanking of God in an active, ongoing way. Living in this creation is meant to be a continual worship experience, filling us with gratitude and joy. But that's not what goes on. In mankind's brokenness and our sin, we, we tweak and twist things and we turn it upside down. And instead of honor and thanksgiving, there is denial and redirection. When you encounter a beautiful home or hear great music or see great art, it's natural to respond in honor and thanksgiving. You honor the person who made that home or sung that music or created that art, and you're thankful for the beauty that you see. How much more should we do that in creation? It's interesting here to read what happens. There's this exchange, not honoring God, not thanking Him, becoming futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were darkened. Things get so twisted. We claim to be wise, we become fools. And then we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's interesting to note that exchange goes on and, and we exchange it for images that resemble first mortal man. So that's the height of creation. Then birds which are glorious things that fly, then animals on the earth, and then creepy crawlies. There's an intentional degradation that Paul's talking about that goes on here. As we make this exchange, things get more and more bizarre that we exchange for God. It gets really ridiculous. It gets really silly. And we, we do this... Now Paul is speaking actually to Gentiles, and we have the picture up, and they, they would actually make images that they would worship of created things, and so if you look at the Egyptian gods, you'll see there's all sorts of animals, and I think they had beetles that they worshipped too. Um, you look at the different idols of, of the Canaanite religions, and uh, lower, lower right there is uh, Moloch, I think, or Marduk, I can't remember. That's the sort of thing that he's talking about. And we might think, well, yeah, we don't do that stuff. That's weird. But we do. They may not look like that, but we exchange God and the glory of God for things like money, comfort, status, sex, entertainment, position, jobs. We do the same thing. They're just not physical idols, but they are. We are exchanging those things that are meant to be enjoyed in the Lord for good, 
to love God, to love others, we, we turn them around and make them the ultimate. That's what we do. It's, it's, really, it's really sad. It's an obvious and ridiculous behavior. That's what Paul is getting at here. And it's inappropriate given God's revelation in creation. Have, have you ever been on a hike uh, in a beautiful place and come across some litter? And I don't just mean like a little bit of litter, like random litter, but litter where you're like, why did someone do that? You realize like, it's a pile of stuff. You know, pile of beer cans and, and empty water bottles or whatever. And it's just there on the trail. And I don't know, I mean... Uh, have anyone encountered that? Litter? So, good. I'm not alone. And have you felt like what I feel is like, why? What's going on? I mean, that's just like, you're dissing everybody here. This is a, a public park where people come to enjoy a hike. And like, what's going on? It's, in, it's like, I mean, I don't, I don't know the person's heart. Maybe like, you know, something happened and they had to get rid of the litter really quick to run away from the bear. I don't know what happened. You know, we, we don't know. But, but it's just like, this is, it just, how can it not be disrespectful for everybody else to do that? It's wrong. Um, I think we, we feel that. And, but can you imagine, take that idea. Now imagine that you have a party at your house. And you have everyone over your house. And you have a wonderful party. And then you go to clean up. Everyone's left. And you find like there's people who littered in your house. They like, you know, they piled the dishes in their, their empty bottles and cans or whatever. And cups like in a corner in your living room. Like, What? What was that? Who, oh, who, who did that? What are they thinking? I mean, you'd be upset. Like, what are you doing? This is my house. You are my guest. And you, you literally in my house? How would it make you feel? Now, imagine that it goes even further than that. Imagine that the guests came over to your house for the next party. And you're there and you're like, hey, so good to see you guys. Welcome. It's great to be together. And, and they just looked at you. And they just rolled their eyes and walked away. But they stayed at the party, stayed at the house, ate your food, enjoyed the stuff. And you went up to them again, you know, hey, I hope you're having a good time. And they just like walked away. I mean, how would you feel? What would you say? Like, what's going on? Am I, I mean, whose house are you at? What's happening here? Now imagine, this is going to get ridiculous, but hang in there. Imagine that they... They stay in the house, and they start talking to your cat, and they say, thank you, cat, for this beautiful house. You're my best friend. I love coming over your house, cat. <laughs> and they, they pat the cat, and they take it around, and you know, here's the cat, and they walk with the cat around, and everybody's, thank you, cat, for this house. And you're sitting there watching the whole thing, and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? It gets really ridiculous, right? I would submit the reality of Romans 1, 18 through 32 is even more ridiculous. Because this is God's house. And he gives us every good thing. And he's there wanting us through his creation to engage him. He's a God full of mercy. He supplies our needs. He, he sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's kind and kind and kind again. And he's there in the house saying, here I am. Would you turn from this ridiculous 
idea that you're holding on to, this ridiculous lifestyle that you're pursuing, and know me, the giver of every good gift. That's what Paul is saying in this passage. That's what Paul is addressing. And we need to, need to realize that it isn't the other guy, it's me. Because again, the whole point in this section in Romans is to get at the fact that there is no one righteous, only God. The London Times once sent out an inquiry to famous authors asking the question, what is wrong with the world today? It is told that G.K. Chesterton responded simply this, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That must be how we respond to this section of Romans. Now, indeed, yes, cultures have been affected by these things. The, the ideas that are out there are obviously in line with what Paul's describing. We need to be aware of that. We need to know as we engage our neighbors, these are the things that they're going to think. This is the reality they live in. But we need to recognize it's in us. And we need, need to recognize that this is here for us to press us to see that we have no hope in ourselves in this situation. That we also are unrighteous. Yes, we might not be as unrighteous as possible, but we are fundamentally broken to think such ridiculous things and act such ridiculous ways. There must be something terribly wrong with me and with you. And so it's meant to drive us outside our own sense of righteousness to destroy self-righteousness, to expose our unrighteousness, to turn to the righteousness of God, our only hope. It's to lead us to what we're going to see shortly. So let's take a sneak peek here so we can see the good news. Romans 3, 21. But now... But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, that's made righteous, counted righteous, are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just or righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is a righteousness of God that comes in to rescue us from our ridiculous situation and that person's name is Jesus Christ, the only righteous one, the only human being who has lived righteously. God in the flesh who gave himself for us in our place. He fulfilled our righteousness. He did what we all know we ought to do. He did live in faith in his Father. He did live in creation, worshiping God in every way. He did live to love others to the point of going to the cross to bear our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins by his blood. Propitiation is a putting away of wrath. It's a 
sacrifice given to satisfy the just wrath of God. He is that sacrifice who gave himself for us so that in him we might be called righteous and accepted. In his great love, he redeems us. He buys us back. We exchange the world for God. We say, we don't want you, God. We want, we want your stuff, not you. Jesus exchanges his life for yours. He gave himself for you, dying to pay for your sins, to redeem you, to buy you back in his great love. And in him, we are forgiven and we are counted righteous. Christ alone, Jesus alone. So what does this passage tell us to do in all these truths? It tells us to run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Every day, every moment, turn from your own unrighteousness, turn from your self-righteousness and run to Jesus. Your righteousness will never work. Your system of justification of yourself will never work. Your system of creating a false creation apart from God will never work. Only Jesus is the righteousness of God. Only Jesus saves us from justice, just wrath. Look to Jesus, the righteousness of God. Let's pray.